Hello. Well, it might seem a strange thing to open a media conference with a historian. What should you who want to master the future be doing, be burdened by all this rubbish about the past? Well, of course, the fact is that everything you do in your life will build on this rubbish heap of the past. In fact, everything you encounter springs from a historic past, whether it's laws or tensions or enmities or borders, territories, even I'd suggest the very concepts in which you think spring from a historic past. William Faulkner said, the past is not dead. In fact, it isn't even past. And he had a point. We are all products of our shared cultural past. We are all shared, shaped by the past. And of course, there are severe dangers of not knowing our past. Let me give you a couple of examples. This is our British Prime Minister, David Cameron. And in October 2012, he gave a speech, a piece of rhetoric designed to stir the population of Britain into pride, into self-belief, and into hard work. And this is what he said. This is the country that invented the computer, defeated the Nazis, started the web, saw off the slave trade, unraveled DNA, and fought off every invader for a thousand years. Now, can anyone spot anything wrong with that? Well, the one I want to draw your attention to is the claim that the British Isles were not invaded since 1066. Now, by my count, the British Isles were invaded in 1153, 1216, 1326, 1338, 1399, 1405, 1460, 1470, 1471, 1485, and 1688, if you include the invitation um, to get rid of James II and invite William and Mary to the throne. But it's not just that, Prime Minister. Worse has been done by our politicians in Britain. Our previous Prime Minister, Tony Blair, gave a speech in New York following 9-11. And he said this. My father's generation knew what it was like. They went through the blitz. There was one country and one people who stood side by side with them. That country was America. And the people with the American people. Now, the Blitz was a name given to the bombing of London and other British cities in the autumn and winter of 1940-41. At the time, many countries stood side by side with us. Uh, the Dominions, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, whose parliaments had voted to join the war in September 1939. Then, of course, there were the hundreds of thousands of Indian volunteers, the exiled governments of Europe... Czechoslovakia, Poland, the Netherlands, Denmark, Norway, Free France, Greece. In fact, as historian Geoffrey Wheatcroft has put it, come to think of it, apart from Soviet Russia, just about the only important country on earth that was not side by side with us that winter was the US, which was very profitably neutral. Now, is this just an embarrassing gaffe? No. It's history being not just used, but abused to advance a particular political agenda. History, indeed, is often used and abused by states to justify their claims and to strengthen their policies. Knowing our history, 
means that we can prevent ourselves being at the mercy of politicians and their often nefarious purposes. And of course, knowing our history means that we can look to the past for guidance. Because of course, history is the sum of human experience. We might learn from history that people in power lie, but we might also learn that there are stories of daring do, of great sacrifice, of progress, as well as terrible savagery or sheer mundanity. Because historians fundamentally deal in stories. Stories are the way we as humans construct meaning. They're the way we make sense of our world. The novelist Graham Swift in The Waterland says this, Man is a storytelling animal. Wherever he goes, he wants to leave behind not a chaotic wake, not an empty space, but the comforting marker boys and track signs of stories. Historians provide such markers and signs. We construct narratives about our lives and make sense of our lives in the light of lives already lived. Simon Sharma put it like this, historians are ministering to a culture terrified of the fragility of the contemporary and seeking in chronicle an inverted form of augury. In other words, we're looking to learn lessons for the future. Can we learn lessons from the past? Opinions have differed. George Santayana said those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Mark Twain wasn't so sure. He said that he didn't think history repeated itself, but perhaps it rhymed. And of course, we can only learn meaningful lessons from the past if we assume that the people of the past were like us. Of course, people who lived before were people who ate, who slept, who fell in love, who feared, who hoped, who got stomachache, who felt cold, who died, as we do or we shall do. I used to work at Hampton Court Palace, and that palace is really cold in the winter. And I would experience a sense of embodying the past as I walked around absolutely frozen, going to the one place in the palace where you could warm up this great fire. And that terrible experience of getting cooked on one side and frozen on the other. Except if you sit there for too long, in which case you will get too hot, turning the spit. And that's a sense of inhabiting spaces where people have lived for hundreds of years through my very body, being in those spaces in the same way as they would have been. Jim Trevelyan, the great historian, said this, the poetry of history lies in the quasi-miraculous fact that once on this earth, on this familiar spot of ground, walked other men and women, as actual as we are today, thinking their own thoughts, swayed by their own passions, but now all gone, as utterly as we ourselves shall shortly be gone, like ghosts at cockcrow. And this is the tension we need to hold between realizing that people in the past were as actual as we are today, but were thinking their own thoughts and swayed by their own passions. Because the first question to when it comes to think about whether we can learn from the past is whether we can actually overleap the gap between our mental and imaginative worlds and theirs. And sometimes that is a big gap. Let me give you some examples of some of the more bizarre beliefs and behaviours that come from the period I work on, the 16th, 17th century. 
and then you have a sense of the obstacle before us. So between 1500 and 1650, 40 to 50,000 people across Europe, 80% of whom were women, were hanged for witchcraft. In England in the 16th century, it was orders that beggars should be whipped. In 1547, an Act of Parliament was passed ordering that the vagabonds, i.e. the homeless, should be branded on the chest with a V with a hot iron. That was thought a little bit too retrograde, so in 1572, a new Act of Parliament was passed saying that they should just be grievously whipped and be burned through the gristle of their right ear with a hot iron one inch in diameter. In 17th century Vienna, an English observer noted that often when a criminal was beheaded, someone from the crowd would run in with a jug, collect up the spurting hot blood, down it in one, and then sprint off. This was thought to be the cure for the falling sickness, or epilepsy. It was thought, according to the humoral system of medicine, that if you took in a large dose of energy from someone else's blood, that you would be healed. But of course, you didn't want to be full of too much energy or you might incur other sorts of medical difficulties. So you needed to sprint off in order to run off the excess. <laughs> in London in 1665, during the Great Plague, the Great Chamberlain of the city ordered the, the killing of 40,000 dogs and 200,000 cats because it was thought that they were spreading the plague, thereby, of course, ironically killing off the natural predators to the rats that were carrying the fleas that were bearing the Yastina pestis. And finally, and perhaps this is the most bizarre of all, for about 1,500 years, it was thought that women were deformed men, that their uteruses were inverted penises, and that during the period of reproduction, they just hadn't received enough heat to push it out of their body. And this made them sort of quite concerned. Um, there were stories in pamphlets and things of girls leaping over fences and discovering their genitals fell down and they were actually men after all. Um, and this was a cause for concern for men as well because it, there was a sense of possible reversal. L.P. Hartley says the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And what was going on in their heads was really very, very different. So the job of the historian is to try and approach the past on its own terms. And immediately we have a lesson to learn about the human condition. That actually as we approach each person, we must keep in mind that they are somehow like us and somehow not at all. I want to consider with you some instances of human behavior in the past that play to our three themes of power, disruption, and lies, and see what we might learn. And I'll start, if I may, with disruption, which, as we've already heard, doesn't always have to be a bad thing. What's more disrupting to our lives than the tumultuous experience of falling in love? And what, even though we know the whole output of the music and film industry is based on the sense of this emotion being universal, what feels more unique, what makes us feel more pioneering than that sense that we have fallen in love as if no one has ever done it before in the world? Yet, of course, what we learn from history is that people have been experiencing similar emotions for thousands of years. And I want to bring to your attention a poem that's 14 words long, 
in its original language that tells us that the themes of love and loss are hardly the creation of Hollywood. So this is it. I hate and love. Why do I do this, perhaps you ask? I don't know. But I feel like it's being done to me and the pain is crucifixion. I hate and I love. Why do I do this, perhaps you ask? I don't know. But I feel like it's being done to me and the pain is crucifixion. That poem is originally in Latin, Odi et Amo. It was written by Catullus, who was born in 82 BC. And in 14 words, Catullus nails the feelings you have when you're in love with the wrong person. You hate them, you love them, you know you should rent yourself away from the situation, but you can't and the pain is killing you. And when I first read this, I was struck by how extraordinary it was to come across something 2,000 years old that was so frank and so intimate, it seemed to have been written yesterday. This is the wonderful thing about history. We live in worlds that are often solipsistic, self-centered, And history reminds us that we are not the first and we won't be the last, that other people live lives as actual as we do. And this is comforting and consoling because it bursts our egotistic bubbles and helps us learn a little bit about why people act as they do. It helps us empathize with those around us and those who live before us. And of course, the insights of our ancestors can also help us cope with adversity. But if love might be universal, what we love is not. What attracts love? This is an acclaimed beauty from the 17th century. Lady Mary Fane, painted in around 1660 by Sir Peter Lilly. Now, scientists today say that beauty is some things like a, you know, the symmetry of a face or the hip-waist ratio. But I would like to suggest to you that beauty is cultural, and culturally conditioned. This is the 17th century ideal of beauty. You've got the heavily lidded eyes. This is before women were really wearing eye makeup. We very rarely see a woman without eye makeup, so it's quite unfamiliar to us. Pale and pink face. Um, little definition. Might, might, might say puffy, or if we're being a bit cruel, podgy. Um, slight signs of a double chin going on there. Thick eyebrows. Um, you know, obviously curls are still in fashion, but, you know, uh, there's uh, perhaps not quite plastered to one's head in that way. Uh, it's not by any means what we would call the zenith of beauty, but in the 17th century, this was thought very, very attractive. And this isn't just the only example. In terms of ideals of beauty, well, the ancients valued a low forehead and ideally a monobrow uh, because that looked youthful. The Elizabethans plucked, the women plucked their hair back an inch at the hairline in order to look wise and pure, very painful. Uh, at the turn of the, 19th, the 20th century, the ideal shape for a woman was this hourglass figure displayed here by Miss Camille Clifford, the Gibson girl, in contrast, of course, to our current fashion, as Kate Moss demonstrates, of slim and tanned. In other words, those a handful of examples hopefully illustrate that ideals of beauty are not absolute nor universal, that they are ever-changing. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is what you find sexually attractive is culturally conditioned. We are cultural products. 
Okay, well, how about lies? We've already seen that politicians lie, but I'm very interested in the lies we tell ourselves. I've spent a lot of time thinking about the psychology of this man, Henry VIII, the English early 16th century king who you can probably recognize from his silhouette alone, the one who had six wives and beheaded two of them, the one who broke with the Church of Rome and created the Church of England. And the story is this. He came to the throne in 1509, just 18 years old, and when he succeeded to the throne, he was universally regarded as being good-looking, accomplished, and kind. One of his first acts as king was to marry Catherine of Aragon, and they were crowned together. Now, to marry her, he had to get a special dispensation from the Pope, because seven years earlier, she had been married to his brother, only for five or six months, and perhaps the marriage wasn't consummated, but a dispensation had to be ordered. Now, in the mid-1520s, when the couple had been married for nearly 20 years, it became apparent to Henry VIII that his 40-something wife wasn't going to give him a son and heir. Catherine had been pregnant six times, but after a heartbreaking series of miscarriages, infant mortalities and stillbirths, they only had one daughter surviving, no sons. And this realisation coincided with Henry VIII meeting this attractive woman at the court, Anne Boleyn. They fell in love around 1526. They eventually married around 1533. And as an aside, but an interesting one, I hope. The evidence of their letters suggests that there was some level of sexual play between the couple, but they actually resisted intercourse for seven years, something that uh, people born after the pill find quite hard to understand. Perhaps our ancestors were more self-disciplined or more imaginative than us. Now, to marry Anne, Henry had to convince himself that his marriage to Catherine was wrong that the lack of an heir was a punishment from God, that the Pope had been wrong to give a dispensation. He wanted it above all to be declared that it had been wrong for him to marry Catherine and was therefore right for him to marry Anne. This is about his conscience. He wanted to be exonerated. He was a very legalistic sort of man. And so he stated, staked his challenge to the validity of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon on the primary source he might go back to, on two biblical texts. Two texts from Leviticus that suggested that the union of a man and his brother's wife were contrary to the law of God. And you can see them here. And the second one suggests that if he takes his brother's wife, he will be childless. In other words, the lack of an heir was a divine judgment. Any papal dispensation that had pretended to allow this marriage was worthless. Now, there were a couple of little problems with this case. For a start, there's a verse elsewhere in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 25, 6, that states the opposite. It says, if a man dies without children, the wife of the deceased shall not marry another, but his brother should take her and raise up seed for his brother. And then there's, of course, there's the fact that they weren't actually childless. They just didn't have a boy. But overlooking that... On the basis of this case not being very strong and the fact that the Pope was imprisoned at the time in the Castle of Sant'Angelo by Catherine of Aragon's nephew, the Pope was unable to grant an annulment. So eventually, Henry broke with the Church of Rome 
married Anne, and annulled the marriage to Catherine, in that order, incidentally. Now, this moment of political, religious, and sexual history gives us an insight into the working of this one man's mind, which I think is interesting to us, because Henry VIII had to be right. To that end, he would ignore the authority of the Pope, this, as you have to remember, is the highest authority figure that existed at the time. Henry VIII had actually written in his defence against Luther earlier. He would ignore the prickings of his own conscience. He would ignore the trauma that it must have caused Catherine. At one point, she begged him in public on her knees not to leave her. And he had to ignore the contradictions of scripture in order to justify his actions. Henry's capacity for self-delusion was great. But so is ours. This is an excellent book. Mistakes were made, but not by me. Henry VIII could have written it. By Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson. And it sets forward a psychological theory of cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is, it says, the state of tensions that occurs when a person holds two cognitions, two ideas, attitudes, beliefs or opinions that are psychologically inconsistent. Holding two ideas that contradict each other is very uncomfortable for humans. And so humans will seek to resolve the two. One practical outworking of this is when you buy a house, if you're choosing between two houses and you don't know which one to buy, it doesn't matter. Because afterwards, you will convince yourself that you got the right one. If you've got the one with the bigger garden, you'll say, yes, this garden's much nicer than that one. It's very small. You've got the one with the smaller garden, you'll say, that would have been really hard work to keep up that garden. Whatever you do, you convince yourself you've done the right thing. Human behavior is predicated on a desire to eradicate cognitive dissonance by believing in the rightness of all our actions. That means that very few people in history, dare I say it, very few people in this room, have done something and not being able to justify to themselves afterwards why they did it and why it was basically the right thing to do. This is why I would suggest that the highest quality of character is the ability to acknowledge when one has done wrong and that perhaps one hasn't done it for the best possible motives. It's not a quality that Henry VIII had. And finally, let me turn to power. Now, historians are very interested in power. We study wars and kings and regimes. But I'm interested also in power where it is more hidden. Uh, Natalie Zeman Davis said that power can lodge in dangerous nooks and crannies. It's not the obviously powerful who are always the most influential. I've spent some time also working on the consistory records of the Protestant church in the south of France in the 16th century. You're thinking, oh my goodness, can we get any more specialised? The consistory was a sort of church court, a Protestant version of a church court, which met weekly with Protestant ministers, with uh, 10 elders of the church and a scribe. They produced a large body of records in these beautiful manuscripts bound in vellum. And what they were interested in doing above all was cracking down on immorality. Now this interests me because it records the moments when things went wrong, moments of social breakdown, um, so marital quarrels, illegitimate pregnancies, uh, gossip, rape, abandonment, divorce, the fissures in the social fabric 
that act as a window onto that foreign country of the past. This was a very patri patriarchal society, 16th century France. So women had no power to make law. Um, they had no power under law. Their husbands could dispose of their possessions without their consent or knowledge. They were barred from public office and privilege. They had no role in the church, no role in the legal profession, no office in government. They couldn't join guilds. In other words, they couldn't trade unless they were widowed. Uh, they were at the margins of the medical profession. Uh, divorce was illegal. This was a time when a man's word carried much more weight in court than a woman's word. The word testimony is derived from the word testis for a reason. And under Salic law, women could not even inherit the French throne. So they had no public power. But these records indicate how ordinary working class women could use the tiny pieces of power that they had to get what they wanted. And above all, this is the power of the tongue their ability to gossip in the course of their everyday lives. Gossip was, of course, a highly significant sanction, and women's words were powerful. Let me give you one example. This is of a story of a woman who, if it weren't for this case, would be totally lost to posterity. She appears in no other records. She couldn't, as far as we know, read and write. We have no pictures of her. Her name was Anne de Valety. And in July 1595, she caught her husband, Pierre Cordonnet, in the outhouse with the chambermaid. Now, she responded by doing three things. She beat them both around the head with a large spoon. She sacked the chambermaid. And, crucially, she went out into the streets and invoked the support of her female friends. She said to them, and was overheard saying to them, I would never have thought my husband would have done such an act. Her tone was withering, sarcastic. She held Pierre up for inspection and found him wanting. She used her female network to denounce and humiliate her husband. For the shame that he had brought on her in her adultery, she shamed him openly. And this is just one example of many of women spreading rumor of castigating bad behavior of humiliating the unworthy, of using their informal power to change opinion and behavior. And men knew just how powerful and dangerous this was. Women's words were concern, a concern to male authorities. Women's unsupervised gossip was considered a threat to the order and values of patriarchal society. It was feared, as in this picture from a French broadside in 1557, that women might get together and discuss their husbands' insufficiencies. As brokers of gossip, women were the makers and breakers of reputation. The words of the oppressed have power. In fact, we might even suggest that there's a guerrilla war that takes place of rumour, gossip and shame. If we want to understand why those people are trolls on the internet, perhaps we need to think about the fact that they are people who don't wield enormous power in normal life, but wield it through this guerrilla war. History also tells us that surprising individuals can have the power to shape humanity for good or ill. And this is my last example. This is Mrs. Isabella Beaton. She's the British author of a 19th century housekeeping manual and recipe book, The Book of Household Management, a bestseller in the Victorian period. 
In the Victorian period in Britain, it was an age of exciting innovations and advances. The newly enriched middle classes were able to purchase a level of comfort and luxury previously unknown to ordinary people. There was also a pressure put on 19th century women to conform to the ideal of being the ministering angel of domestic bliss, as Dickens put it. And manufacturers targeted their nascent advertising at these newly consuming middle class ladies. Claims were made about the morality, the purity and the health of the products they sold. For example, asbestos beds, the healthiest material to sleep upon. One of the ways in which these themes of the domestic ideal and these new gadgets coincided was in an innovation that was uh, supported by Mrs. Beaton. One that would ensure, she said, the health of infants and help women avoid the sexualized, time-consuming and energy-sapping act of breastfeeding. Swap it instead for the convenience of a new device, the brand new baby's bottles advertised widely. Now, these were glass bottles with a rubber tube and a bone teat. Mrs. Beaton advised her many readers that the tube and the teat did not need to be replaced for the two or three weeks that it lasted before it wore out. Of course, she was writing before Louis Pasteur's discoveries about microbiology and bacteria had really seeped into the public consciousness. She didn't know, we can assume, that the porous bone and rubber were perfect breeding grounds for all sorts of bacteria. For diphtheria, for typhoid, for cholera, for TB. In other words, this deadly cocktail, one of the most bacteria-ridden, dirtiest items in the Victorian home, being praised as an immense boon to mothers was actually something being put straight into the mouths of babes. As a result of Mrs. Beaton's persuasive power, infant mortality rates towards the end of the century remained devastatingly high, running as high as 15%. Thousands of children died as a result of her instruction. So what have we learned from history? Well, I mean, practically speaking, the pendulum in this instance has swung so far that we don't expose our babies to anything that might stimulate their immune system. We overcompensate for the ignorance and complacency of the Victorians. On the other hand, the Victorians nevertheless pressed on with scientific progress and advance. They were pioneers in a way that actually caused to us to be a more visionary people. In H.G. Wells's book, The, the Time Machine, the time traveller doesn't think about going back to the past, which is what I would first of all think of doing. He thinks about leaping into the futurity, as he calls it. And he says, what strange developments of humanity, what wonderful advances upon our rudimentary civilization might yet appear. Perhaps it was a more visionary age, despite everything. But we also learn that anyone disseminating information to the masses has a weighty responsibility and that we can only believe what we're told. Who is Mrs. Beaton's equivalent today? And what are they telling us that we believe? After this brief and eclectic dip into the past to look at power, disruption and lies, what have we learned well, we've learned that people in the past had radically different mental and imaginative worlds to us. Which of our beliefs and behavior will seem weird to future generations? We've learned that people in the present, as in the past, were somehow 
just like us and somehow not at all. We've learned that some emotions might be universal, but what stimulates them might not be. We are products of our culture. Even what turns us on is culturally determined. That people in power lie and that we all lie to ourselves to avoid cognitive dissonance. That we can justify pretty much anything to make ourselves feel better. And that power can lodge in dangerous nooks and crannies, that the oppressed can resist through this guerrilla war of rumour, gossip and shame in a way that subverts the official transcripts of power. And finally, that anyone disseminating information to the masses has a burden of responsibility and yet we all are gullible. Can any of this serve us today? Can it serve you as you try to shape society? Can we learn from it? Well, I hope so. But let's not be too hard on ourselves. Because irrespective of anything else, the one essential lesson we can learn from history, the one that humanity has repeatedly proved, is that we can't resist making the same mistakes again and again. Thank you. That was fascinating. Thank you. We have a few minutes for questions. I'll ask a first one while you think. You wave your hand. There are runners with microphones. And uh, if you should get a microphone, please stand up so that we can see you. So my first question is, you mentioned the word progress very briefly, maybe once. I think for this room, uh, this would be people who, are, I think, on average, are very well informed about the challenges our generation is facing. At the same time, I think everybody here is inherently optimistic about progress. What's the historian's view on progress now? It's, it's gone out of fashion, hasn't it? Well, the narrative that history is a story of progress has gone out of fashion uh, to an extent. I think it was hard to sustain that after the world wars. Um, up until that point, it all looked like it was going in the right direction. Um, and perhaps that's not quite the case anymore. But on the other hand, I'm really interested, as I, as I did touch on briefly, in the sort of 19th and early 20th century ideas about pushing forward. Um, you know, all of those children who died as a result of those babies' bottles were the victims of progress, in, in, act in other words. Um, and there were all sorts of other developments during that time where they were trying out new things. Um, and it makes me think of that Roosevelt quote about, you know, not being the critic who counts, but the doer of deeds, the person who's trying to push it on. Um, so, yes, the, the historical climate is slightly negative towards progress as a sort of narrative of history, but actually if we look to history, we can see people who were really pioneering. Mm -hmm. Do we have a question from the audience? I can't see. You'd have to wave. It's quite early in the morning. Everyone's waking yes, up still. Is. Well, luckily I have another one. Oh, no, there's one over there. Do you have a microphone? There Hello, goes, I'm uh, Martin. Uh, I was told by a friend who has a big interest in history, but he's not an historian, but I was told that one of the oldest inscriptions that was found and deciphered translates to, well, it was better in the old days. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's brilliant. There's this wonderful, <laughs> it was better in the old days. There's this wonderful um, quote from Hesed, writing in 700 BC, who says that, you know, you should not trust the future if we have to depend on the youth of today who are reckless beyond words. <laughs> um, 
which I've always loved because it means that we've always thought that there was a golden age. We've always thought that we were better as young people than, the, than they are. Um, and so I think that's absolutely right. We have to remember that we've always had this kind of harking back as well as this looking forward. We are very much like our ancestors in many ways. So my question is, are we genetically programmed to glorify the past? Are we quite <laughs> Is I it in our genes to do it? Is it in our genes? Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, is it in our culture to uh, glorify the past? Um, well, obviously, we've got lots of instances in history where actually people have been iconoclastic and have been wanting to remove the past. I mean, great movements like uh, the Renaissance. Well, the Renaissance is harking back. I scrap that. The Reformation, uh, the Enlightenment are things which are um, were great movements from people precisely um, saying that th things needed to change. But actually, even as I say that, I'm thinking, yeah, but they did often couch what they had to say in the language of going back to a purer past. The Reformation is going back to the primitive church, for example. You know, um, so, so maybe you're right. Maybe we do have this sense that we need to always say it was better then and uh, it's all terrible today. Um, why is that, do you think? I don't know. I have a follow-up on, on this, which has to do with uh, with the Reformation, for instance, because the early modern period that you're working with, uh, there, there's also a huge media revolution going on because the printing press has become widely available. So faith is becoming in some ways more democratic and power is being wrenched away from Rome and it's a traumatic process, but over time that does happen. And also political thinking is being made available to many more people. Again, I think if you work in the media industry, you will like me, have this idea that surely making information available to more people is making power available to more people and therefore automatically a sort of good kind of progress and change. Can you think of any counter-arguments to that or could we at least accept that as a sort of tenet of faith? Mm. Well, you, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 revolu the internet revolution has nothing compared to the printing press in terms of the impact that it had. Um, so it's suddenly the sort of distribution, it didn't happen overnight, but the distribution, as you say, of religious texts that informed people they could think for themselves. Um, and, you know, things like the English Civil War are, are largely as a basis on the basis of um, pamphlets that are being passed around, inspiring people to political thought. Mm -hmm. So there is this sense that it's empowering people. Of course, immediately also you get the rise of the cheap uh, press, you know, like the Hello magazines, the OK magazines of their day. So the 16th century is filled with these brilliant pamphlets describing things like monstrous births. You know, a woman has given birth to a cat. Or, um, uh, you know, or, or people who sort of born with strange things growing out of their heads and things like that. So you, immediately you get nonsense and complete sort of uh, uh, sensational, um, uh, entertaining <laughs> um, sort of and literature alongside. fears that women are judging men's penises secretly. Absolutely, yes. yes oh. You know, that just, you know, obviously goes on all the time. Um, uh, <laughs> so, so actually, always side by side you have these two... Um, strands. You can never say that it's all just for sort of high purposes of spreading um, great ideas. Mm -hmm. Of course, people spread all sorts of nonsense as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do we have another one? Yes. Hi, my name is Britt Staxton. I'm absolutely so happy for this dip in the past. I think <laughs> this is a wonderful start for this conference. And actually the total opposite from what happened last year, because I do think that we don't tend to glorify the past. 
as being in the middle of this internet revolution, we tend to see as we are the ones that thought the first thoughts of everything today. How can we be better to learn from the history, do you think? Do we have time in this, in this era where we live in? How can we have better processes to actually learn from the past and it doesn't have to be centuries back? Mm-hmm. Huge question, brief It's a huge answer. question. <laughs> um, I, I suppose you, you're sort of posing a question that exists at the heart of what I do, really, which is a, the question of how we can learn from the past. Um, I mean, one of the things I find amazing is that social media can be used to pursue the past. I mean, I, sur- I follow lots of historians. I surround myself with people who are interested in history. I create this little world where everyone cares about history. Um, And actually, it is amazing how these new technologies are advancing all sorts of different disciplines um, that gives us some pause for thought. Um, you know, I actually think I'm a, I'm a big fan of Twitter and the ability to convey something, to convey a historic thought in that sort of time period, is in that sort of space, those characters, is the sort of time that we as individuals with very busy lives might just about have time to absorb in the course of our days. Um, But it's a very good question and something I think I need to ponder more because this is precisely our challenge as being historians in this in this modern age. Lovely. I think that's one of the big questions we'll take with us uh, from the room. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Susanna Lipscomb. Thank you.